Up next on episode 35 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the mysteries of server hardware, anomalous voting patterns, change fatigue, and whether or not Joel is the Martha Stewart of the software industry from IT Conversations. Hi, Joel. Hey, Jeff. Hey, sorry, I was a little slow to answer the phone there. That's okay. I was a little bit early today. Yeah, I see that. By one minute. I was just running out of things to do. Yeah. Are you actually at the office now? I am, yeah. It's pretty dead there, I would hope. Uh, it's about half. I think we're about half staffed right now. Yeah. Well, my boss is kind of a jerk. He doesn't always give me time off and often have to come into the office at odd but, hours. Yeah, but uh, you don't have a boss. I know. Well, that, that's the joke. It's really hilarious. <laughs> you were, you were uh, working on servers there over the, over the, uh, the Christian holiday. I know. It's weird. It's like these holidays, I don't know. I just feel like I get a lot more done over the holiday than <laughs> on, actually on a normal work week. It's very bizarre. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. We should probably start with that. Sure. Uh, so I understand so you learned th- something about server hard drives this week. Oh, you want to open with that? Okay, so the, the servers Why weren't not? supposed to arrive until today, actually, but they arrived last week on Christmas Eve, of all things, which I thought was hilarious. Like a big, uh, a big waste of space in that Christmas Eve emergency last <laughs> shipment box, you know, the, the, the UPS truck. Yeah, we better get this giant box. Some kid's going to be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make his Christmas. It's like yeah. some geek, you know, middle-aged geek like me gets a bunch of servers. So, uh, yeah, so I got the servers and I started, you know, just opening up, taking inventory and stuff like that. And one of the reasons I did this was I knew there's going to be variables, like things I don't know about yet. And that's also one of the reasons we I do things like this is to understand and learn about the topic, right? Absolutely. Uh, and one of the things I unfortunately found out was that the way they sell these servers, they they don't, it's like a razor blades and razor type of business model, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the The price on the bare servers is actually quite good, I think, for the Lenovo servers for what you get, because you get hardware RAID, which is not cheap, yep. and you get, particularly on the larger server, you get redundant power supplies, which is also not cheap and kind of hard to find, actually. Yep. Uh, it's a good price. But what I found out, sadly, is that I'd bought a bunch of hard drives to put in these servers to test the RAID arrays and, you know, just do some quick buildups and stuff like that. And there was actually no way to put them in the servers. I mean, there's kind of a ghetto where you can kind of just, like, hang them in there and let them, like, flop against the metal. (laughs) (laughs) Which works okay. Which actually works okay on the 2U because there's only two slots, so there's nowhere for the drives to really go. So that kind of works. And, in fact, I've actually set... I thought you had six... I thought you had room for six drives. Well, we have two servers here. We have a 2U and a 1U. Yeah. And the 2U has six drive slots. Right. And the 1U has two drive slots. Oh, it's only so the one I have... Oh, okay. Yeah, well, actually, there's going to be three, ultimately, that go to the hosting provider. Um, so anyway, getting back to the, the actual problem mm-hmm. is that these drive rails are not included. And these are just literally pieces of plastic, right? These, they probably cost, like, a dollar to make. Are these... Um, <laughs> are these uh, uh, Rails or are they uh, uh, trays? They're rails with they're rails with like an ejector switch. They're basically yeah. rails that have like a, a front piece so that it looks pretty, right? Uh, and a and a bar where you can like sort of eject the drive. Yeah, but there's no it's, um, it's because it's a it's a it's raid and you have to be able to hot swap. And if you have to be able to hot swap, they want you to disconnect all the electrical conductors at the same time. So they want you pulling it out, you know, to be able to pull it out. Well, the connectors in this case it's SATA. It's just straight up SATA, which is like a very generic connector type. And SATA yeah. includes both data and power in the same connector. Oh. So there would be no way to connect this without connecting them all at the same time. Except if you can't, like, just pop them in and out. If you can't pop them in and out, it's annoying. I mean, right, I could, right. 
in my weaker moments, like, oh, I'll just use duct tape. And actually, I posted on my blog about this, and people were like, oh, you should, A, fabricate your own rails. I'm like, really? <laughs> fabricate my own rails? Uh, I'm all for DIY type stuff, but that's pretty far beyond the pale, far beyond my Oh, abilities. these people are just showing off. <laughs> and then the other one was like, you know, just use duct tape and rubber. And, you know, if I was going to do it in my house probably I would do that, actually, because, I mean, I could rig something up or use books or just prop them in there. But if I'm going to ship this to a hosting center, there's no way that I'm going to tape the drives in there, right? It's just totally unsafe. And yeah. plus, like you said, what if I need to eject a drive and things like that? So you need the real rails. So some good came out of this, actually, other than, obviously, my ignorance about the business model. Um, the only way to get these rails, I actually called IBM, is to buy a drive. It's literally the only way. So wait, wait, there wait. Is Did you try discount technology? I did, but th- these are these are new 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 servers. Like they came out in October. Uh-huh. Uh, now what we're finding out, and this is one thing that came out of the post, is that some of the drive rails look identical for the older servers and the newer ones. From IBM to Lenovo, like right. that whole switch, because <laughs> IBM basically gave their server business to Lenovo. Um, so there's things that may work, and I have a couple things arriving uh, this week um, that look like they might work, mm-hmm. um, and they're much cheaper than buying new drives. Right. Uh, a 160 gigabyte drive with the magical rails is 100 tray, bucks. It's a tray. Yeah. Um, so I did order two of those just to play with those and make sure those work. And I also ordered from an eBay seller that looks right mm-hmm. if you look at the picture. And this was this came out of the comments on the blog. So I really thank everybody that uh, gave feedback on that. Even if it was you're you're an idiot, that's that's okay. <laughs> well, no, it's Sometimes just something you got to learn. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I had the same but thing there was a lot of really helpful feedback. Is my point. Yeah. Uh, and I went in directions I wouldn't have found myself. And that was one of the reasons I posted that. Plus, I just thought it was a funny story. You know, the Ultimate Geek Christmas. Like, oh, my God, I was so excited. I was really, really excited about these servers. You have no idea. And it's like opening up a present and finding out there's no batteries or <laughs> you can't actually use the thing that you got. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anyway, I, I found it very amusing. So, it, for me, that's another reason I posted it. Well, yeah, we had the same thing with the Dell servers when, when, I, when I bought the first Dell servers. You know, this is one of the things I really liked about bootstrapping Fog Creek is that when I was having this kind of emergency where I'm like, holy crap, where do I get the trays for the drives? <laughs> the Dell service I just bought. Uh, you know, I had time. Like, I, I was not dealing with 40 other things burning down. This was my only right. thing that I, you know, I could just work on that problem quietly. Um, totally. I mean, I, I love learning about this stuff. And, you know, it's it's kind of, and somebody's like, well, why would you spend your time doing this? And, and technically they're right. I mean, if I was working in a, a nine-to-five job and I did this, this would be kind of sloppy. Or if there was some kind of a rush to get this thing out before, I don't know, before experts exchange <laughs> became decent. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Change don't hold your whole, breath for that. Change their whole world view. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I really do enjoy this stuff. And I mean, it's yeah. a learning process. And I learned about this whole drive rail thing. I think, you know, I, I had... I actually got that piece of advice. To be fair to the people, when I originally originally asked about this, they, they said, well, when you buy Dell, be careful. Make sure you get the drive base. So I had heard that. And I think I had kind of just hoped against hope that the Lenovo guys were, like, smarter than the Dell guys. <laughs> I, no, I don't think, I don't think it, it's, it's, it's either the Lenovo guys or the Dell guys. I think that they're buying these RAID enclosures. And those are sort of standard parts, and they need little trays because that's just how RAID is. Well, and other people also chimed in that, you know, these guys do want to make money. And the server model is very lucrative. I mean, I know that... Well, it, yeah, that's, that's, that, some of that changed when Dell started selling servers. Um, the, you know, there, was, there, was a, there was a big historical shift when Dell noticed that HP was selling... You know, Dell wasn't that interested in servers, I don't think. Uh, right. And they noticed that HP was selling um, at retail, um, you know, these... What was the HP Presidio or something? They were selling these very, very consumer-y, crappy 
PCs that you take home with all the junkware installed on it and 14 stickers on the keyboard and, you know, the crappy servers that you buy at the local Best Buy or whatever. Uh, sorry, workstations, desktops. Desktops. And HP was selling these for like $500 and, and, and uh, obviously at a loss and seriously undercutting Dell uh, in, in hopes that that would make Dell go away. And Dell realized that HP was using their server sales to subsidize the desktops. And the only way to prevent that from, you know, the, the, and, and, their, and their strategy, which is really smart, I think, was to just make servers at a reasonable price, you know, at, at using the same model as Dell instead right. of servers at the bonus extra, super-duper extra high price. So, uh, uh, and, and this worked. And, and uh, Dell servers are very popular. Yeah, I I like the Dell, but I just I, again I kind of object to the whole you got to call the salesperson to get the to get a a reasonable price thing like the the whole I don't know maybe I need to just get over it. <laughs> maybe you're. But I, I hate the fact that when you go to the website, like you get the suckers price, and only suckers pay that, and that really bothers me at a very fundamental level. I think that's a bad way to do business. Uh, you know but what? The same thing just when it comes bought- to servers. Sir, Maybe you would have gotten a better price on the Lenovo's if you had dealt through a salesperson. You would have. And you would have yeah. had a person you could call right now and said, why the hell didn't you tell me I need drive rails? And the person would be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll get my boss to let you have some. Well, this would be an advantage for Dell because Dell's salespeople work for Dell. Lenovo doesn't actually sell these servers. They partner with a bunch of other people. So, you know, it was a choice. I actually do like the Lenovo hardware. It's really cool looking. And I mean – the raid and stuff. Like I said, I'm still happy with my choice. It's just this drive rail issue, which, you know, I'm on my way to resolving. So we'll see. And 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 again, to get back to the original point, is like I on some level enjoy this stuff, right? Uh, I'm not going to do yes. it forever. I'm not every server we make. I'm not going to handle. No, build, that's the great thing about. I mean, this is what the been in the way it's been for me with Fog Creek for the last eight years. Is just you know I I'm always working on something new. There's always some different thing that I get to work on. Right. Uh, like, I just find RAID interesting, like these really advanced, yeah. cool RAID hey, arrays. Did so. you ever uh, find out anything about the quality of the hard drives themselves? Because there was a time um, back when I was buying hard drives a few years ago uh, where the, sc- the SCSI drives were way more expensive than whatever cheap crap you would buy, um, uh, you know, it p- piled high to the ceiling in fries. Uh, and the reason they were, one reason they were more expensive is that they had a higher. MTBF, mean time between failure rating. And that number was widely recognized to be baloney, but I think there was, uh, there were different lines of hard drives the hard drive manufacturers made, and, and there were lines where they would actually spend a few more cents to put in ball bearings or whatever uh, to make drives that could uh, withstand sort of server use where the drive might be literally in use all the time perpetually. Well, they do actually sell. Okay, so there's been a lot of standardization in the hard drive front in the last, I would say, five to ten years. So there's, I think, less difference than there used to be between, you know, the crazy, consumer. scuzzy stuff. And what they call it, gamer drive. Well, if you look at what Intel does, I mean, it's like a Xeon processor, some magical server processor. It's essentially a rebadged, you know, think about economies of scale and how you do this manufacturing on a very large scale, right? You're not going to have special production lines for these yeah. small volume segments. You're going to just rebrand them. And, and, and to be fair, things Is that do really change. Is that what they do? I mean, I, I, well, I, with the Xeon, that's definitely, I'm sure we're going to get all kinds of angry calls from Intel employees telling us that Xeon is definitely a different, definitely a no, different it's beast. Pretty, it, that's absolutely the same. I mean, oh, it really, really, really is. I mean, it might have more cash, right? Like they might sell more expensive versions that have more stuff. Uh, they're bigger. They, they come in this gigantic assembly, like a big, big old paperback book. 
It's yeah, just so okay. they can charge a higher price, really. Oh. Um, but on the hard drive front, they do sometimes use different firmwares because I will say this: the the disk usage pattern for a server is very, very different than a workstation usage pattern. That is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll have firmwares that are optimized for server use. Now, as far as reliability and stuff like that, I mean, I'm just not a big believer in it because I think if you have a RAID array, that's the entire point. Is you know inexpensive disks, right? You're using disks that aren't that expensive. And you just, if, if one fails, you just pop it out and put it back in and the RAID array rebuilds, ha, right? Ha, ha. Oh, wait, you know what? Before you put these things off in the uh, data center, make sure yes. that you've, tr- you've tried that and you've practiced and you've learned how to do that and you've well, learned... That's, that's entirely the point of this exercise. That's cool. why I was so frustrated because I... Because I thought drive. it was going to be just like you said, like you pop out a drive fails, you pop it out and you pop in a new one. That's right. Oh, that's from the test. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> we actually had uh, drive start failing in a bunch of our servers all at the same time because, oh, that's the other thing is they generally tell you not to try to buy drives. If you have like two mirrored drives or something, you, you want, they, they need to be the same size and stuff like that. Sure. But totally. you probably want them to be from different um, manufacturing runs or different companies or different manufacturers or something because uh, otherwise there, there is a very, very strong correlation in when drives fail to like the manufacturing run. If you take two two drives out of two boxes that you got right next to each other, there is a much higher probability that they'll fail within some close time period than if you took two random drives. Oh, really? Yeah, there like actually is some kind of failure affinity, and there was certain every once in a while. You, and you could see this in the old days of using it. I don't know if this is true anymore. I, I'm just like maybe I'm aging myself, but uh, definitely if you go look on Usenet, <laughs> the archives, every once in a while, wherever it was, you would see um, eight thousand people all saying, "Holy crap! I have an IBM Black Cheetah, blah blah blah, whatever it is, the exact drive that they had, and it just failed." Is anybody else seeing this? Yes, I just had sixteen of those fail. <laughs> Yesterday, right. and they were like all over the world. They would all fail at the same time, and you know it was something to do with you know that particular manufacturing run. And it wasn't like outside of its unusual, you know, it wasn't an unusual time for a drive to fail. It was just that because the drives were made literally one after the other, they failed um, at the same time, which is kind of strange when you think about it. But who knows? Um, so that's one of the uh, that's one of the um, maybe it's like witchcraft things that that the people server builders will often do is try to get off run drives yeah it, it's possible now the drives we did buy and i sent you the link to them on newegg are technically they're although they're sata and they're mainstream they're designed for data center use right they have yeah, yeah that's they, how they're they specifically claim. sold and they do they do cost like 10 to 15 bucks more okay than your average drive and they have a five-year warranty so i am trying I to buy so. yeah. the longer life drives but on the other hand i'm sending i'm going to send like four extra drives to the data center we had to sit there l- let me tell you what happened to us <laughs> we had these two servers in the office they were the office servers that had all our data on them and they were it was raid and and people told me when i was talking about raid you know i talked about this on my blog and i said i'm going to get these raid drives etc and um and so uh uh the uh um you know one of them fails and i was all well people what people said to me was Oh, with RAID, you got to worry about the RAID controllers because the RAID controllers are just not that good, and they're more they're likely to have bugs. And the RAID controller can really like trash your data on all your disks. And I said, "What? <laughs> that doesn't make sense." And indeed, that's what happened. <laughs> Lo and behold, um, but it was actually worse because I had a drive that I knew was okay. Um, you know, I had one drive that I knew was ruined and one drive that I knew was okay. And these drives, when you're using hardware RAID. It's not just a regular drive. Like if you popped into a computer, you would see all your files there. It knows that it's a part of a RAID set in some way. That's right. And it's worse than that, which is how does the RAID backplane, 
it has to remember what the RAID configuration is. Like, are you using RAID 1 or RAID 0 or RAID 5 or which drives belong to which sets? That whole RAID configuration thing is, totally. has to be stored on the RAID backplane uh, in some kind of, you know, EPROM or some kind of, like, like, like long-term memory type, type scenario. And if that gets fried, there's a backup copy on every drive that's a part of your set. Uh, saying exactly what the RAID configuration was. And this is, it says this drive is number three from set one through six that consists of blah, 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 blah. And the trouble is, if you then pop that drive into like another RAID array, into another RAID backplane, or if you just kind of aren't paying attention to what you're doing and you don't know mm-hmm. what I know about this RAID configuration information, what I know now, and I didn't know then, um, then... Um, it might say, oh, here's an unrecognized drive. Okay, well, I'm going to use the information that I have on the backplane, which is that that should be a mirror of drive A, and I'm going to rewrite it with a mirror of drive A, and <laughs> you immediately lose all your data. Awesome. So there's like all kinds that of ways. Ha- this happened to you guys? This is, exactly this is, an actual... this is actually what happened to us. <laughs> but to be fair, that is exactly the reason I have these servers here, because yeah. I totally, RAID is the big feature yeah. where I need to play with it and have some understanding of you know, how it works in practice. Yeah. I'm going to eject drives, insert drives, and just see I what I had done. I had done a little bit of that. You know, I had done like, all right, I'm going to try just pulling out a drive and putting in a new one. And that worked right. the way I expected it. Rebuilt the drive. Everything showed up the way I expected it would. Um, right. You know, what I didn't expect is, I think what I was trying to do is put a drive on a, on a new machine and expecting that to just kind of work. And it turns out no, you don't really understand. It was, it was trying to be too smart, right? It saw that the drive had this identity information on it from a similar RAID controller or the same RAID controller yeah. and made some assumptions based on that. that I'm, I'm pretty sure it made the assumption that it, it knew what was going on. I don't remember what it was, but it was just wrong, and it, and it wound up wiping out my one remaining uh, copy of the data. And so we had to go to backups, which wasn't the end of the world, but... Right. But to me, this stuff is kind of fun. So I'm looking forward yeah. to it. I don't want to bore people with tons of server talk, but that's where we are. And I, for one, find it interesting. Well, so. I thought it was interesting because I just want to talk about it because, you know, some of our listeners will be doing things like this and at least they should know what to watch out for. Oh, sure. Totally. And, totally. Things, and that's, uh, that's, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> I learn through painful experience. That's how we do it. <laughs> so when the next time the servers are down, you can curse me. It's like Jeff had to build his own servers. So that's, <laughs> that's why everything is down. Uh, so, so we, uh, we actually... Yeah. We had a ton of activity this week, a lot of activity. All right. And one of the one of the things that happened earlier last week uh, was that we started looking at anomalous vote patterns because I, I had several um, complaints by email that people were felt like they were being targeted for down votes and you know other just weird behaviors that we try to really discourage. And in looking at that, um, I started looking at uh, sequential vote patterns of just people that are voting other people down like a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, and in doing that, I realized I need to – I can't just do that. I have to also check for anomalous upvote patterns too. I mean the, the reciprocal of that yep. um, because if you're going to check for anomalies, you might as well just go whole hog and check for all the anomalies. And uh, we found quite a few, many more. There were like four times more sort of upvote anomalies than downvote anomalies. So that's good in a sense because it means – there wasn't a lot of vendettas going on, <laughs> which is nice, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it was kind of a bummer because there was actually uh, quite a bit of strangeness with upvotes that, that we identified. And our strategy with this – and I wrote a blog entry about this and I tried to explain it. Now, I have to be a little intentionally coy about what we're looking for because I feel like if I explain exactly what we look for, people are just going to optimize around it. Yeah. Uh, and if you're smart, you'll be able to do that anyway. I'm not saying I can stop you from fraud. Oh, but you can make it harder, and then there will be less But fraud. you can make it more annoying and more difficult, and that's what we're trying to do. And, and if I seem like I'm being coy, I apologize, but that's why. Because I don't want to give people a laundry list of here's how you get around 
the checks on Stack Overflow to see if votes are valid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I will say that I have total confidence for the things that we're checking for. Every time I have gone in and hand-checked them, they have been correct. Um, so rest assured that voting, <laughs> not that you know the reputation number is like you know your insurance score or anything ultimately matters, but in the way that it's calculated, it is very, very, very accurate. People so, were definitely, I mean, there were definitely people that, uh, we, we always desired the, the point system to be a motivator. But there are some people for whom, like, it was just hard for them to disengage and realize that it's just a number that we print next well, to your name. Sure, totally. Um, and it, it's weird for me because having, you know, created the point system, I don't really take it that seriously. I mean, it, it's serious in the sense that, okay, if you the intent of the point system, the reputation system, is just so that the system learns to trust you. It doesn't mean anything more than that, mm-hmm. right? It's just a number that determines how much our website how many, how many abilities you should have on our website and how much it should trust you to do the right thing. Uh, with the logic being the more you're invested and the more other people like your stuff, uh, the more uh, invested you are on the website itself. And you're not going to do anything crazy like going and delete everybody's profile or edit everybody's post to say, I'm a doofus and stuff like that. <laughs> because it would make you look bad at that point because you're invested enough in the website that it's also uh, identity yeah. is attached. Well, beyond that, it's also a system whereby uh, – you know, we're, we're, we encourage the behavior we want to encourage. Just by having policies about points, we say, hey, here's how you use Stack Overflow. Right. That's very, very true. Let um, me... Um, so... Okay. Yep. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just had a completely different topic, so if you want to finish that one. No, that one's pretty much done. Okay. <laughs> one of the things, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, one um, remaining thing that I've noticed about Stack Overflow uh, points, uh, especially on answers, and some people have mentioned this, and I don't think it's always true, but it seems to be sometimes true. Um, you know, we designed Stack Overflow to have two use cases, uh, or at least there's, I asked a question, and let's talk about it right now, and a bunch of people see it on the homepage, and they come in, and they talk about it, they vote things up, they vote things down, and um, and then we had the long-term use case, which is, at that point, this archived Q&A sort of becomes this permanent part of the of the world's knowledge by being easily indexed in Google. And peop- and the next use case is all the people who are having that same problem and are finding it already asked and already answered in, in, in Stack, uh, Stack Overflow. So they're coming back after a long time. That's sort of the long tail usage. And one thing that people uh, sort of complain about is that sometimes an early answer gets voted up a lot, even if it's not the best answer. And an answer that comes along three weeks later that is much better uh, because it's the, the question is no longer as active. Nobody's looking at it anymore. And nobody looks down at the bottom kind of to see that new answer. Um, uh, as a result, it takes it a lot of time for, or it may take it forever. I don't know. It's taking it too long to earn enough points to move up in the rankings. Have you right. seen that? I don't know. I haven't seen that on a lot of questions. I've seen it on a couple. Some. I mean, people can come in, but this is the problem with coming in late to a conversation. I mean, if you come in really late to a conversation, I mean, that's just the price you pay. But I've, I have seen posts where there have been new entries at the bottom because I actually yeah. go in. The mitigating factor here is I think if you're really interested in the question, you will read every answer. If you're really interested in the question, you really will. I mean, if you're just browsing, you don't care. Yeah, especially, if it's, a lot a, people, yeah, if, it, especially if it's a real programming question where it's very specific. Yeah, if it's a real programming question with, with, that you're really encountering, believe me, you read everything, yeah. right? You've got to give the reader some respect. I mean, if they're coming there because they're interested in the topic, they will read every single thing that's posted. So that's topic A. Is rest assured, your stuff will be read by the people who really need to find it. Uh, now, as far as it getting voted up, you're right, because there's just not that many people that are going to find it over time. So you can't really expect to come in a month later, two months later, have a really awesome response. It could be awesome. Yeah. And then have it get immediately voted up the top. That's just, 
I, that's not going to happen. Um, I, I don't know of any way to fix that necessarily. Right. Well, the <laughs> but, question is, will that there, – there's also another uh, – well, sort of a related problem is that the people who come in late are – uh, those Google users with a particular question, once they get their answer, they're, they're out of there. And those people are not as likely to be Stack Overflow members, not as likely to vote up. Um, although true. anybody can vote as, up. But they're not as likely to be invested in Stack Overflow in the same way because they're just sort of hit and run looking for an answer to their programming question. Well, that's true. Fine. Now, you know, we want to serve those people too. Um, you have to note that you, you'd have to have some reputation to even vote up. I mean, it's, it takes 15 rep to even earn the right to vote up. Yeah. Because because we don't want vote gaming exploits by anonymous users, we have to have that. Right. So that's true. So if you found it and you're like, oh, great response, you literally could not vote it up. Yeah. So there's a bit of a catch twenty two there in terms of how the site works. I think over time, though, we're going to have a large population of um, passive members who have accounts, don't visit the site just for fun. Uh, you know, they're not hanging out on the homepage and trying to answer every question and all that kind of stuff. But uh, certainly will come to the site. Uh, Maybe only through Google, or maybe if they have a question, they'll search for it, and you know, and then they'll be logged on because they have an account, and then they, you know, hopefully some of them will vote things up. So there is something, uh, there is sort of that, there's that kind of weird gap, and partially, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. The fact that the early questions get a lot of points, uh, you know, a, a, a prompt response is should have some advantage because it's valuable to get prompt responses, even if it's not the be all and end all answer, even if it's just a lousy link to a, some other web page that has the answer, and maybe somebody else could do it a lot better. Uh, uh, you, you know, you still answered, you know, you still solved that person's problem quickly. Yeah, I think you have to have some faith in the long tail, and you have to have some patience. And uh, I think <laughs> we're serving two audiences, the very impatient audience, and then the long tail. And these yeah. are very different audiences. They have very different needs, very different ways they're going to approach the site. But I think in the long term, it's like the whole Wikipedia concept of how can you have an article on this incredibly narrow topic that it gets to be this great article it's just it takes time it takes time yeah. and growth of the user base so I, I would say have some patience when it comes to that stuff um, yeah one of, the, the, one of the articles I contributed to on Wikipedia didn't get anybody else posting to it for like a couple of years and then suddenly somebody came in and brought it all up to date because my information was kind of old that's um, right any other major stack overflow news or should we move on to some more generally interesting things well, there is one thing I have to talk about. So one area we've been really stalled on for a long time with regards to developing the site is the editor. So the actual box where you enter your post and it accepts Markdown and it does all the fancy JavaScript, mm-hmm. that control, it has an unfortunate name. It's called the WMD control. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it's a great control, and it's worked really well for us. However, um, there are some bugs in it that I that I want to fix, and what's been keeping me from doing that is we don't have – unobfuscated source for that. We have the minified JavaScript, like the, the version right. that's tiny, so it's faster to download by you your browser. We still don't have that? We still don't have that. I've been emailing. Something happened. Okay, so John Fraser, the author, super nice guy, super helpful in, in the beginning, kind of just fell off the planet. Like, Maybe he did. Almost literally. Well, I don't know what doesn't happened doesn't apply to in his neck of the woods. If anyone hearing this knows John Fraser or knows how to contact John Fraser, please do so on our behalf, and I will thank you forever. But <laughs> I, I can't really get him to respond to me anymore, okay. which is weird because he was very responsive in the beginning. I thought this uh, was – wait, I'm confused. I thought this was a Google thing. No, that was the code coloring. That was a Google That's code. the code colorization, which is different. This is the actual GUI So what control. this is is a version of Markdown that runs in JavaScript. 
Version Markdown that runs in JavaScript and gives you a real-time preview, which is essential. Okay. I mean, to me, that was one of the major features of the site that as you type, you can sort of see what the effects are without clicking a preview button or anything. So there are stupid. several, I mean, there are several Markdown implementations, just not in JavaScript, right? Yeah. Well, is there a Java so, Markdown? Is there a Java version of Markdown? Well, there are server-side versions of Markdown as well. We have one in C Sharp. Um, is there one written in Java? A, I'm sure there is. I haven't then looked. Then you can use GWT to translate it to JavaScript. <laughs> yes, that wouldn't be weird. Rube Goldberg contraption that we're building. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's not, it's not the world's most complicated thing. Uh, Markdown, maybe. It yeah, is. no, it, it's not. It's just I. Yeah, I, why rewrite it's it? It's painful to reverse engineer stuff. It's just really painful to deminify and deobfuscate. No, I mean, I, 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 before I started deminifying and deobfuscating, I would just take the source code from another language and I would just line to line translate it. But it's it's Java. It's not going to run on the. Client. I mean, it's that's a, it's an insane answer. JavaScript, really? Well, because Why? it's the DOM. It's manipulating the, the browser's DOM. Java doesn't know anything about Internet Explorer's DOM. I'm confused. That's here. part of the magic of the control. I'm gonna I'm gonna just ignore that suggestion <laughs> <laughs> for now because <laughs> it's crazy. But no, uh, <laughs> there's no DOM. There's no DOM here. You all you do is you take, uh, and I'm sure that this is what this minified WMD thing is doing. You've got Markdown, and Markdown just takes a string and returns a string. Right? It takes a string in Markdown and returns a string that's in HTML. That's what Markdown does. It goes through and it replaces the, you know, the double dashes with M dashes and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it does. Um, and, and so you well, take, actually, it's the preview that's the hard part, Joel. It's no, the, the actual, preview is just setting that you get the HTML and then you set the inner HTML of some div to that. Right, but there's still a lot of browser-based manipulation you have to do to make that happen. You have toolbar buttons that have to be clickable in the browser. Uh, right. Yeah, that's like two weeks of work in that stuff. Well, yeah, but uh, anyway, I didn't want right. to make this a giant topic, so I okay, want to just mention it and move on. <laughs> but we are doing the painful process because we have not been able to reach John. We're doing the painful process of actually reverse engineering these JavaScript files. So if anyone wants to help, I'll put the address in the show notes. We're using Git, which is like that uh, crazy new distributed source control system, and we're using github.com. And Chris Jester Young, one of the very, very earliest Stack Overflow users, has been helping us with this, and it actually started on some of the reverse engineering. So it doesn't look like we're going to hear from John, because it's been out there for a few days, and I, I emailed John again and haven't heard anything. So we need to really start on this in earnest so we can actually fix a lot of these bugs we're running into with WMD. And an example of one bug that's really annoying to me personally mm-hmm. is I use Firefox 3 usually for the most part, although I use Chrome as well, and I sometimes... Um, when you click on a post, you'll notice on a normal web page, you can hit space to advance the page, and you can use the arrow keys to scroll. That does not work in Firefox 3 for us mm-hmm. because the WMD control, for some reason, and this is exclusive to Firefox 3, absorbs those keystrokes. It's really annoying. Um, these are the kind of bugs that we want to fix once we have a version of the source code that's actually maintainable and editable. Okay, so been- I'm looking here at uh, – here might be another approach – I'm looking at uh, Aaron Swartz has this uh, website called jotit.com. Yep, we know jotit. It has one of those. It has the uh, it has uh, it has a, the, the preview thing with the with the. Uh, I don't know if it's using WMD. I, I doubt I doubt it because Aaron Swartz was one of the original writers of Markdown, so I think he probably might have just written this. So maybe he can give you some code. Uh, it's possible. Um, I, I, I do want to continue down the WMD path for now because we've been really quite happy with WMD. I mean, it does everything that we wanted, and we spent a lot of time researching this decision early on. Um, and I think 
the confusing part is that we had such a good dialogue with John in the beginning. I had no idea it was going to be fall off the face of the planet was a possible outcome to this relationship. Um, so I had no way of knowing this would ultimately happen. But anyway, so I, I just want to mention that. That's another thing we're, we're embarking upon. And Okay, if you have any to Aaron Swartz because he might just have the code and give it to you. Yeah, I'll try that. There we go. Eventually, I have to say it three times, and Jeff will listen to me. <laughs> well, eventually, I just tell you what you want to hear so we can move on to the next topic. Go ahead. I know you're having fun with the whole reverse engineering, the minimized <laughs> code, and not, none of the variable names are ever going to be right, and you're going to figure out what every single line does for the rest of eternity. Yeah. Well, I figure if we rewrite it, we'll own it, because we, a longer term, we did want to have a version of WMD that's, that's that we customized. Yeah, to us, because we have... Being a programming site, we have specific. You have needs. to own that. You have to own that code. I mean, that's that's got to be. I mean, you have to have at least the ability to make bug fixes to it. You have to. You have to. Totally. Have and that's yeah. So that's why ultimately it's kind of worth it. It would be much easier if John materialized on the planet somewhere, but can't always get what you want. So that's that. Okay. Next. So that's that's most of the Stack Overflow uh, business. We did do a bug fix with uh, regards to reputation, but we probably don't need to get into that now. We've talked probably enough about reputation for yeah. the moment. Uh, nobody's listening anymore. <laughs> we should put all the reputation computation stuff at the end of the podcast possibly I'll move it you know I'm just going to play this podcast backwards <laughs> um, programming is it a good career yeah so I stole your Joel on software forum post because I liked it and I, I was trying to send you a of, message, uh, too, that I, I think you should write shorter form blog posts. Like, I think... I, I remember I tried that. This was on Stack Overflow podcast number... Oh, I don't know. But I tried that. I said, um, don't... What did I say? I said, don't write comments. No, I said something uh, that they decided was controversial and idiotic. Oh, I know. It was something about defaults or something, or modal dialogues, or... Oh, don't disable menu items. Remember? I posted something. Well, I was trying the yeah, shorter form was, thing. That was that was extreme. That and was, I wrote the short form. Don't disable menu that, items. That was a Twitter message. That wasn't really a blog post. That was like three paragraphs. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so we know that I that doesn't that, work. Yeah. So anyway, for people, we should explain what the topic is. So somebody on Joel's uh, software form. Is it the business Discuss, of software form? No, it's discuss.joelonsoftware.com. It's just Joel on software form. Slash question mark Joel. Had essentially, and I'll paraphrase here, had essentially said that due to economic uncertainties, they weren't sure if they wanted to be a programmer anymore, if it was the right, you know, a good career to be in. Maybe they should become a doctor or a lawyer or something. Yeah. Uh, and Joel had a really awesome response. Um, I don't want to summarize it completely, but basically saying that programming is a great career and that, you know, you, you make quite a bit of money for not having to go get, say, a PhD necessarily. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to, have, uh, you don't have to work and you get for to, seven years as a lawyer before you become a partner and actually make money. Yeah, and, and you get to create things all day long, right? You're creating things that other people theoretically use. It's, and basically saying, you know, s- stop being such whiners. <laughs> I think, I really do think that, uh, you know, one reason people sort of wondered why I was so harsh on this uh, one particular post. Bob. And uh, that's because if you take it out of context, you don't realize that the Joel and Software Discussion Group gets this question every two days. And for some reason, there is a class of people, and I just sort of do this on, on purpose, but I mean, p- part of the goal of uh, Joel on Software, and one of the reasons I post like pictures of my office and talk about doing things the right way at work is that I know that for a lot of people who are stuck in a place where they don't do things the right way and they live in a sucky cubicle land and they have like a 17 inch monitor and they only have one of those and the red 
doesn't work because I only get green and blue. Um, <laughs> everything has sort of got a tint to it. Uh, these people, I think, uh, you know, come to Joel and suffer a little bit to daydream about a better place, you know, just to kind of imagine what it would be like to work in a better place and sort of a, almost like escapism, like, uh, like, those, like escapist romantic comedy movies um, or like uh, Martha Stewart. And I very much model Joel and Software on Martha Stewart. Her whole goal in life is to show, is to, is to, have you ever seen Martha Stewart, Jeff? I have, not very often, but occasionally. She's often doing something, and you just have to laugh and say it's ridiculous. Like she's building some gigantic paper (laughs) swan out of crepe paper that every individual guest at dinner will get, you know, with their grapefruit half in it with a big old paper swan, right? And when you're watching this, you have to say to yourself, who the hell has time to make a paper swan for every guest? It's just ridiculous. This, this is like, if, even if you were a full-time homemaker, that was your full-time job, you could not keep up with Martha Stewart. And the reason I think that she does this, I believe, um, other than to make money, but I think the reason that this works is that she's sort of telling people, um, hey, can you imagine what it would be like if you had so much time to prepare for Thanksgiving dinner that everybody got a paper swan for their half grapefruit that was served as an appetizer? And you just sort of wistfully think about how busy your life is. And it's just a little, nice little form of escapism. So that's kind of what I do with Joel and Software sometimes. Uh, you know, I want you to – that's the position uh, – uh, that's, the, that's the employer brand of Fog Creek Software, right? We're the perfect place to work. And uh, that's how we recruit the great people. And um, the uh, – yeah, so what happens, though, is that some of these people kind of look around at the job that they have, and it sort of sucks – and they wind up on Joel and Software because they're reading about the good way to do things, and it's not happening at their job. And so they click on a little discuss button, and then they kind of mope and groan and compl- complain and whine. And a lot of them don't realize that, uh, you know, for an office job where you sit down at a computer all day and, and, and manipulate knowledge, uh, we have it really, really cushy. Right. I mean, what are you going to be like, a, uh, I don't know, an editor at a newspaper? Think about it, like everybody does office jobs. Every time I go to the doctor's office and see the people that have to like deal with all the insurance paperwork in the doctor's office, and they, they're, they're like in a closet with all, the, with all the patient's records, and they're just really, really jammed in there. And, um, and you know, the doctors are mean to them, and they're, they're, they, their working day is miserable, and they get nothing. And these people have RNs. So... Yeah, Rant I mean, I'm totally with you. Like, I, I feel like it's a tough love type scenario. It's like you have to understand the the alternatives. And I think some of the be- this I posted about this on my blog. And again, I kind of stole your topic because I kind of wanted you to blog about it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I, I phrased as you know, love it or leave it, which is obviously an extreme form. But I was really surprised people wrote essays in the comments yeah. to this post, like literally essays. Yeah, I had. I mean, about. Yeah, the average Joel read? on software comment on on my side is you know five to seven paragraphs. It's crazy. So people have very strong feelings about this, and I yeah. think that's really to me what it's about. It's about it. having a strong feeling, right? And the only mitigating factor, and people did bring this up, and you're bringing it up up as well, is you can be in a situation that you don't like, but it's it's not the programming, it's not the job itself, it's the environment, right? right? Where you have yep. like the pointy haired boss who makes you do ridiculous yep. things that are terrible all the time uh, against your better judgment. And it's not the programming you're really objecting to. It's nope. the situation. And I think that happens for anyone. Say you're like a high-priced lawyer. Yeah. I mean, how many lawyers have you met that are just in- incredibly unhappy? Oh, they're I mean, all, all. 
Wait, they're all, all unhappy, right? Yes. Nobody, and they're making just ridiculous amounts of money. There's just no relationship between these two. When do they ever spend it? <laughs> and, yeah. then, and you know what? And until they make partner, they're not really making ridiculous amounts of money. I, I, or well, a few of them are making pretty good money compared to probably. But, but, but in general, uh, you, you know, they, they just get, they, they're working like slaves. And you know what they're yeah. doing? Grep. You spend five years doing human grep, where you're given documents and you need to find things in them. Right. You know, that's a very typical like first five years of your law career. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the equivalent jobs are just, are just uh, awful. And so if you're in a bad place, um, what's interesting here is that this just, it seems like the Fog Creek hack, which is let's just make a workplace and let's not make it awful. Let's just not do any of those awful things. Uh, and, and then it'll be like utopian. Is, uh, it's so easy. It's something that any of these companies that have awful work, workplaces could easily do half of the things that we do. You know, I mean, maybe they, they can't have private offices because they signed a lease and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they don't have to have the salespeople sitting next to the programmers and they can buy these big, mon- they can buy big monitors and they can get adjustable desks and air on chairs and they can uh, use source control and they can allow people to use source control and they can treat people with respect and dignity and they can, there's all kinds of stuff that they can do. And that's all pretty cheap compared to uh, everything else. You know, I think people were surprised when I posted pictures of the Fog Creek office saying that, you know, we fully expect that, you know, what we spend on our office here um, is um, maybe 1% of revenues more than what any other company would spend. You know, it's just a minuscule extra cost for the office relative to uh, what a typical software company might spend. And I think, too, I can, I can empathize. Another complaint people made that I think had some validity validity to it was that there aren't enough Fog Creek type software jobs out there to, yeah. to really vie for. Like a lot of the jobs that you would end up getting are, you know, the cubicle farm jobs with the pointy haired boss who, you know, you're ultimately going to be kind of unhappy about. And, and what do you do about that? And I think there's really two ways to look at this. Uh, well, three, maybe if you want to be a complete, if, if you want to be a complete defeatist, you could say there's nothing you can do about it. That's the way it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to vie for those, those rare programming jobs that are actually really great. Uh, but I think there's actually another path, which if you go into an organization that isn't completely just pathologically brain dead, then you can actually go in and actually kind of influence the job a little bit. Yeah, it may take a uh, while and eventually, but, you, but if you're smart, you'll get promoted and then you will be able to influence things. I think it is possible. I think sure. you have to be realistic about your chances depending on the situation. But I think there are some sort of in-between workplaces where they're not – they haven't completely lost their minds. Yeah. They can be educated about the right way to treat their employees right. by their employees. There, a case so can be one, made for the 30-inch monitors. Yeah, exactly. So that's one path to look at. And I think you have to have a certain personality type. To, you, know, you have to be the squeaky wheel a little bit. And not a lot of programmers, frankly, are that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to be realistic. Um, and then, of course, the other option that's much, much harder is to say, hey, why aren't more programmers starting companies like Fog Creek or you know, Atlassian or Springsoft or these other companies that were brought up as examples? Yeah. Why aren't you out although, there although, creating? I, although, although I, I hate to point this out because they're a competitor, but Atlassian is just a room full of desks. So, but anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> okay. Lovely okay. company, charming people. It's a big room full of desks. <laughs> yes. So, obviously, this is not an option for a lot of people. I mean, go out and start a company. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like telling a depressed person to cheer up on some level. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just cheer up. 
but, you know, just start a company like Microsoft and hire a bunch <laughs> of awesome developers and create an awesome office. But, you know, honestly, I think as an end game, if you look at your career and like where can you go as a programmer, I, I really respect what you guys have done at Fog Creep because I feel like that's a, a fantastic end game for a programmer is to, to basically create a family of programmers where you create an environment that you yourself would want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's just very admirable. So if you could look at your career and say, okay, in the long term, I would like to start a company where we hire awesome developers, have awesome conditions, and build awesome software. You can, I do uh, wish more mm-hmm. developers would look at that at least and, and, and plan for it in the 10-year view or something. Um, I, I guess that's my – I don't know how realistic it is. Well, this is, is really one of the – that's the other reason I do a job on software is it's, that's the, the mission of Fog Creek. You know, people think, oh, what? They make bug tracking software. I don't get it. But really our mission is to, is to make life better for programmers everywhere. And if there's one company somewhere – that has 30-inch monitors and is 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 uh, profitable, then somewhere some programmer going to his boss saying we need 30-inch monitors is going to have something to point at, you know, and he's going to have some 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 explanation. You're going to be able to say, look, Fog Creek does this, and they're very profitable, and they're in New York City, and we're in, you know, wherever it may be, Idaho. So why can't we, you know, these things are only a thousand dollars. How much is that? You know, we give give people some tools and also just kind of the the right example, kind of you know, sort of be the beacon unto the nation, so that. Uh, um, you don't have to think that this is a, 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 a waste of money or that it's, it's not a profitable way to run a business. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, you've got to have examples to point to to make a case. So if you're trying to change your organization, which I think is going to be probably right. most people's situation realistically, you've got to have something you point to and say, these people think that we should be doing this and they have successful businesses. I used to try to be- point to uh, Microsoft. I used to say, look, Microsoft has private offices for every developer and they're highly successful. But the trouble is Microsoft is too freaky, an example. Like, nobody can listen to that and actually, you know, everybody's going to say, Microsoft, well, they blah, 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 and they have a billion dollars and they had a monopoly and there's too many reasons why they can't be used as proof that you can have private offices for developers. Um, but Fog Creek, who's ever heard of Fog Creek? You know, it's just a little company, bootstrap, no VC, no nothing, making a product you've never heard of and you don't care about. And uh, yes, we can do it. So there, right? enough bragging about yeah. Fog Creek. Yeah, but th- that was a great post that you made. And I wish you would take Thanks. more posts that you're going to make like that. I just do a quick blog entry. Um, well, actually, I feel like I'm there was a difference. Is, uh, I don't yeah. feel like the example you gave was valid. I feel like this post is, is a valid example of something you could quickly turn around as a blog post, and you could post more frequently. And I think pe- a lot more people would have seen it, frankly. That's why I picked it up, because uh-huh. I felt like not enough people were going to click through on We're, the forum uh, and see that. Part of what I'm doing in the last few days is just trying to re- revitalize the discussion groups just by sort of going in there and gardening a little bit. Because um, we, we've had these discussion groups for a long time in Joel and Software. And um, for ages, I just, you know, there was the longest time where I just wouldn't go in there because it was just a bunch of mopey people <laughs> that were driving me crazy. And, and I just didn't really, <laughs> you know, they kept saying, oh, I'm quitting. I hate this. And I just didn't understand them. I just don't, and I still sort of don't to some extent. Um, but, right. uh, you know, or so... Um, uh, well, let's yeah. get, go in there and be like that guy in the Israeli army. Go in and clean some toilets. Clean Joel. some Show toilets them for them. I'm gonna, Show them how it's done. Yeah, the other thing I'm doing is um, I'm having a lot of fun using my moderator capabilities on the Jalan Software Discussion Group. I used to be a lot more light-touched, but now yeah. um, this is just something I want to announce. If you ever visit the Jalan Software Discussion Group, if, if you assert a point on the Jalan Software Discussion Group, if you say, quote, this is a terrible time to quit your job, for example, then... Cool. You need to back it up. And there are two ways you can back it up. You can sign it with your name or you can explain why. And if you're not doing either of those things, it's getting deleted. Right. So I don't need anonymous votes for a particular position. I either need arguments or who you are. Tell me who you are. Because if I know who you are, then I'm, then, then I'm, I'm going to use your reputation to decide whether or not 
that that quote is is important. But if you're not signing things with your name, a lot of people just leave it blank. Uh, they don't put in any name at all, or they put a dot in or something, and uh, or they just make something up like the letter D, um, and uh, and and then they just make these little flyby arguments, uh, which is like something they might say at a cocktail party if they were just walking wait, wait, by. Wait, the user D post on your forum. <laughs> I know him. Really? No. Uh, then I'm going to delete. Uh, I'm just going to delete it because it's not adding. And actually, one, I've been doing a lot of that and actually um, dramatically improving the uh, signal to noise ratio, which means reducing the. Well, why don't you just require noise. people to enter, you know, something valid? Why don't you require like yeah. registration at that point? Uh, yeah, I could. I- I'm tempted to require registration. I'm tempted. You know, there's you a, might. Lot, a lot of people just want to. The number of people that are anonymous. Uh, registration has been available. And I keep saying, and it says all over the site, you know, if you're anonymous, your post may be deleted. Um, but it's still like running like 90% anonymous posts or people using handles. And um, it sort of drives me crazy. And, I, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic with the idea of posting anonymously if uh, you don't want to leave, a, you know, a breadcrumb trail for your employers and stuff like that if you're, you know, complaining about work. But if you're talking about something else, you know, just use your name and, and use this to build your Google reputation. You know, this is your chance to post something with your real name so that when somebody types you into Google, they'll find you being thoughtful and saying something intelligent. So the, the value of uh, using real names on the internet, I think is uh, huge, but some people are just scared. Right. Well, this gets into the whole reason we created Stack Overflow. I think mm-hmm. it's a balancing act. I mean, you want to allow anonymousness, but you also, you got to have the voting system. And honestly, <laughs> you should probably be using the Stack Overflow system for your discussion. <laughs> Groups. I thought I thought of that. Yeah, I thought of I thought of that. Um, it, it, there's something that diff- different that happens in the discussion groups. There's an attempt here. The Stack Overflow system of Q and A with the voting and so forth makes yes. a lot of sense when it's Q and A. But uh, the discussion group is supposed to feel like uh, you're sitting at the table with a bunch of people and you're talking about something. So, or even like this podcast between you and me. Sometimes you just get off track. But there's only one thread of conversation. I don't have threads here, and that's because that's sort of more like a real life conversation with a bunch of people. Uh, if you get off track, okay, we'll talk about that other thing. If that first thing was important and we need to get back to that, I'll bring it up again later. And um, there's this feeling that it's like uh, more like a bunch of people contributing sort of long thought out things. And, um, and it's not like there's the perfect answer. You know, there's something that's kind of broken. I mean, you try to have a conversation and stack overflow because posts keep getting resorted. Yeah, right. just no, that, that's true. That's true. But I think in your case, you kind of have to go to with registration in the absence of a voting system. Well, we might. Because you have no other objective way to well, determine. We might do, uh, yeah, well, we, what Michael wants to do is have registration that costs a dollar. So we get your real name off your credit card. Well, that's a model that could work because that's the model of MetaFilter. Mm-hmm. So that's not a bad idea, actually. I might support Michael on that. We might I think, that. If, you're I think right. we might do that for, for the business and software discussion group. It's a different kind of different people getting advice about running business and that kind of stuff. Um, kind of a different vibe. And I think that there's, they're, they're, they, they feel more directly like there's value to them out of being a member. Not that a yeah. dollar is too much to charge. No, but. no, that's completely not the point. But it will work. I mean, yeah. it worked for Metafilter. I have no reason to believe it wouldn't work for you guys either. So Might happen. Okay, what else have we got on that? We haven't taken any uh, listener questions, and we're running out of time. Let's take one, all right? Okay. Oh, wait, we, haven't, we also haven't done any favorites. Well, let's do listener questions, then we'll We'll do proceed. one listener questions. Here we go. Um, I hope you can hear this this time. This is a question from Ian Varley. Hey, Joel and Jeff. This is Ian Varley from Austin, Texas. So did you hear that? 
I did. Okay. Hey, Joel and Jeff. This is Ian Varley from Austin, Sorry, Texas. A few episodes back, you answered a question about how to get through a slump in your coding career, sort of like a what do you do if you get coder's block kind of question. And uh, one cause that I didn't hear you guys mention, and I think this is a huge culprit, is that a lot of career programmers eventually just get exhausted by how relentless the pace of change is in this industry. Like, say you've spent years becoming a SQL guru, only to wake up one day and find that Link is the new hotness, and you don't know anything about it. And, you know, sure, you can go and get a book and learn it, but after a few cycles of that, I think a lot of programmers just get exhausted and give up. So I guess my question is, uh, for Joel, you've been doing this longer than most, and you still seem pretty excited and engaged with new developments in software. So how do you keep from getting change fatigue? Thanks. Yeah, so, well, first of all, uh, uh, I, uh, I, um, it, it's not entirely true. The, the languages, there are only a couple of programming languages in which I can sit down and dash out large blocks of code without ever consulting a manual. And both of those languages are obsolete. <laughs> so um, the the uh, I, I am sort of behind. I, you know, I haven't had time to necessarily keep up on everything um, uh, as much as I would like to. So, for example, I don't actually know how to do anything in Link. Um, now, I don't really see this change fatigue. I think that the, the argument here is a little bit backwards of, of change fatigue. I, I sort of would be fatigued if I had to keep still using the same technology all the time. You know, there's nothing more fun than learning a new thing. And I think... A lot of programmers like that, and, and um, every everybody here, uh, um, maybe it's just a different, I don't want to say class of programmer, but just a different kind of mentality or a different kind of passion for the field, but um, you can pretty much count on the fact that most Fog Creek programmers uh, would be very comfortable in Ruby and Python, even though none of them ever have to code in Ruby or Python for their job. So that says something about uh, and these are relatively new languages. And, 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 and pretty much everybody here learned them kind of on their own in their spare time at home. And uh, in fact, um, I was, um, we're sort of doing a new documentary about software development at Fog Creek. And as a part of the documentary, I went around and asked everybody what their hobbies were because we wanted to get some, some video footage of them doing whatever their hobby was to make it look like we're all fun, exciting people with all these interesting hobbies. And uh, yeah, the hobbies were Python, Ruby, <laughs> programming, programming on your own um so uh uh the the i think the passion comes from the change that's the exciting thing getting to learn some new tool uh getting to play with it and in fact the, the usual problem that i have is the opposite discouraging people from uh from playing with new tools yeah i don't uh, this question comes up and I, I don't get this question because to me the thing that attracts you to the field is that it's constantly changing probably more than uh, 99% of the jobs out there, everything changes all the time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why you would like it now and then hate it 20 years from now. And maybe that's just me. But the other thing is I view like relationships, like long-term relationships that you're in are interesting because, oh, it's the same person over and over. Isn't that boring? Well, no, it's not boring because that person is changing all the time in very small and large ways, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the change becomes the things that it, that attracts you to long-term relationships, I think, if you know what you're doing. So I would view software development as sort of the same relationship that, yeah. yes, okay, we don't have SQL, we have Link, but Link is clearly based on SQL. It's a lot of the same concepts, right? Yeah, it's not like this it. alien civilization yeah. has landed and given us a new language. Right, right. <laughs> this is based, you're building on the work that has gone before. And this One is your argument about. about learning C. It's like, well, you learn C and you know, that's the, the, the bedrock. 
a lot of other stuff is based on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pointers and arrays and things like that. So understanding that will help you with this crazy new stuff that's really just, you know, iter- iterative improvements on what we had before. Mm-hmm. And it's also exciting because, you know, it makes your life easier. Things that used to take a day can take, you know, four hours mm-hmm. because we have better tooling. So I don't know. I, I, I view it as continually exciting. I, on some level, I, I just I don't, I don't get this complaint that things change too much and eventually you have change fatigue. There um, are some things that I want to I, – I, 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 I do get fatigue from – it's not really change fatigue, but the, all the changes mean that sometimes you don't even have time to learn a technology at the depth that you might have used to know a technology, if, if that makes any sense. Like, for example, I, I can look um, – C is very deterministic, even compared to C++. With C++, you never know that an operator isn't overloaded and some fun- funny thing is going to happen when you call it. But with C code, you can pretty much look at the code and know exactly what assembly language would be generated, and you know what exactly what it's going to do. It's a very small language and very, very – deterministic in some ways. So, uh, I mean, not that every language isn't deterministic, but, um, the, you know, the class libraries aren't that big. They're well, not class libraries, whatever they're called, the uh, libraries, the function libraries. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's uh, pretty much, you know, you learn a few things and you understand the various memory models and um, that's it, you're set. Uh, but in, in new programming environments, like say ASP.NET programming in C Sharp, for example, you have a huge class library. You got all the browsers. You got the CSS, the HTML. There's this gigantic world of things that you have to interact with, and there's no way you can possibly learn them all. And so you have to page fault in the knowledge. Basically, say, all right, I'm about to do a database connection. I'm going to have to learn how connection strings work, or whatever the database connection method is. And now there's a new thing to learn, and you learn it just enough to get where you need to get, but you never really learn it in depth in the same way that you might have learned some early programming languages, you know, some of the languages from 10 or 20 years ago uh, where you really did know everything about them. And that can be kind of frustrating. There's a thing, um, I'm reminded of this thing that catches me all the time. For those of you that have done uh, any uh, web forms coding uh, in ASP.NET, if you've ever like dragged out one of the data bound controls onto your little surface and hooked it up to a date time format thingamajiggy, and then try to format the date time and then run your code and the date time format is not getting formatted. And it's because of some little bug in the design where you have to find some property that what used to be that's called HTML and code and set it to false. I, I don't know why or, or what. Or I, I don't even understand why. And this is a thing that you then you'll, you'll search on Google for days. Like, why can't I change the formatting of a data bound date time uh, in ASP.NET on web forms? And you'll find this answer. And that's one of those annoying things that you just kind of have to learn before you can really successfully use this environment. And that's just one tiny example. There are billions of those. There, there are absolutely billions of those. So we've gone from like the old programming languages like C, Assembler, you know, heck, Fortran, um, even C++, uh, VB, maybe. The old programming languages, and certainly in the days before Windows programming, like programming on Unix, were... Uh, finite in a way. It was almost like a, a toolkit, like a mathematical toolkit that was going to behave in a certain way. And the new programming environments is like literally you're a surgeon and you're working on a living patient. You never know like what weird organ is going to jump up and hit you, you know, squirt some fluid in your eye. You never know what, like the whole Disgusting. thing. Yeah. There's like, there's like entire organs in there that you don't understand. And you're just trying to get the thing to basically, you're trying to get the Frankenstein patient to basically do some basic thing, and then you're going to quit because it's just frustrating and tiring. But you can never imagine that you could learn everything about this gigantic 
world. You know, let's say it's Windows programming. And remember Petzold with like a with Windows, the Windows programming book by Charles Petzold must have 100 chapters. And 40 of those chapters are never going to be applicable to any code that you ever write because right. you're never going to put anything in the taskbar, for example. Right. Uh, that's a point I was going to make, too, is like you, you have a sort of narrow focus. I mean, you don't have – there's tons of stuff happening that you'll never care about, right? And mm-hmm. That's just the way your job will work. So <laughs> being able to ignore new things is also a valuable skill. I think that's actually underestimated in terms of programmers who are able to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, don't feel like you have to learn every new thing coming down the pike. Right. I, I have more of a just-in-time attitude towards learning stuff of, you know, this is what I need to proceed. This mm-hmm. is what I'm going to learn, and maybe one or two related things. Yeah. So it's not quite as overwhelming. It's like, oh, everything has changed. Well, no, you don't care about that. You care about this little path. And the little bits that path has meandered in the last five or six years, which is usually not that much. And I think for me, I'm more of a generalist, so it's easy for me to say that. Like I, I prefer to be broad rather than narrow. Mm-hmm. I could see this being much more painful. If you were really, really narrow um, and all your stuff changed, that would be really painful. So I can empathize a little bit with that. Um, yeah, I think there are some people for whom programming is uh, – um, you know, they, they get into a comfortable position where they're doing the same CRUD reports for three years for the same insurance company. And they're just real comfortable with, with doing it. And it's, you know, they're not really thinking about their job that hard. They're not really working that hard. And, and they're just doing the same thing day in and day out. And, and uh, for them, it must be terrifying that there are these kids coming up with these Ruby on Rails thingamajiggies that when you looked at it, it didn't make any sense. You have no hope. And you're just, you're just afraid. And um, so maybe these are the same people who are complaining about the how, how bad it is to be a programmer. But to me, that stuff is fascinating. You know, it really is an intellectual uh, uh, pursuit. It, it really, really is. And there's just no way you're going to make programming be a repetitive job like washing dishes. Because if it were, we would write a subroutine and you would be fired. <laughs> so well, it's always going to be a new thing. Argument. Yeah. If, if, it's, if what you're doing is really that simple and repetitive and automated, then yeah. you'll probably be outsourced at some point. Yeah, hopefully um, to a for loop. But if not to a loop, then to, <laughs> then to a, uh, a program. A human loop. <laughs> a different country. But, uh, <laughs> Where loops are very cheap. <laughs> by, by definition, we're doing new things all the time. You, you are. Otherwise, you'd just cut and paste or you'd use a function or you'd um, – you should be. If you're doing the same thing every day, then you're, there's something wrong here. And if you're not learning, there's something wrong here. And this is an intellectual pursuit, and it's a lot like being a, you know, a research scientist or uh, you know, a, a researcher at a university. Um, there's just not going to be that much repetition. There's going to be new things every year. And um, that, to me, seems like a formula for not fatigue rather than a formula for fatigue. So enough of that question. You want to do a stack overview question, stack overflow? Yeah, let's go a little bit. Let's go like 10 minutes long this time because I right. do want to do the stack overflow question because okay. I have a really good one. Okay, so it won't be a little bit long, but I think it's okay because we didn't have a show last week. Um, so the one I want to talk about is arrays, comma, number, what's the point? Oh, uh, yeah, that was a good, that was surprisingly good. 392-397 is the number. I'll obviously good link call. it in the show notes. The funny thing about this one is I actually read about it through a third party. Like, I didn't even actually find it on the Stack Overflow site. It got I, on I found Reddit, it because, I think, or, or, or yeah, Hacker News or It something. might have been on Reddit. I saw it because uh, Damien Katz blogged about it, and uh, I was just surprised to see him reference the Stack Overflow question. And, and his point was, and I tend to agree, is that arrays, it's interesting, but arrays really have kind of lost a lot of their significance in mm-hmm. sort of modern programming languages that uh, – you know, a lot of time we use data structures that kind of abstract away the fact that underneath they might be using an array, or they might not be. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But very little of the time are you going, you know, like a sub one or a sub two. 
It's just not a very super right. common activity. And, 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 uh, and that was his initial reaction was, how could people not understand arrays? That's incredible. That's ridiculous. We're not teaching our students. Yeah, and then yeah, his yeah. second reaction was, wait a minute, there's something to this. Like there maybe is. arrays, we've kind of moved away from arrays as like a fundamental data structure because they're, you know, they're just too low level right. ultimately. Like at, pointers, like the whole at, argument at, would be for pointers. Yep. At the very least, and, you got to have. Well, that's because of like uh, the, the, there's something that's that's wrong. I think about the way data structures are still taught to this day, where they're taught as if an array is one type of data structure. The, the number two answer, or the the uh, not the highly most highly voted answer at all, but the number two answer that says, you know, well, you're doing this for order of one uh, random access. In other words, for constant time access is the reason you use arrays, and that's the textbook answer. Where then that's the way we were taught about arrays. And that is actually uh, a little bit wrong. Uh, you know, we've been teaching people for all these years that an array, you got arrays, you got dictionaries, you got hash tables, you got binary trees, and um, you got linked lists, and those are all the data structures. And whenever you want to do something, you've got to pick the best data structure. And actually, an array is more of a fundamental building block of data structures. It's not really a good data structure to use because it doesn't, unless at the very least you need to manage memory so it can grow. Yeah, it's almost like a really low-level structure now. It's mm-hmm. interesting how rarely I build arrays, and, and you don't really think about it because I think particularly the, the older you are, the more you've used arrays historically, and you just kind of… I've used them once, and it was Yeah, you kind of forget how rarely you use yeah. them. Uh, when you think back, though, when was the last time you used an array? Like an actual, just a raw, plain old array. A bare, Dim yeah, a array of strings, array of ints, or… yeah. Array of pointers, I guess, would be the ultimate array, right? You don't even know what's in there. But you can't. Um, the trouble is that the real reason is, think about it this way. Um, here's sort of proof that we don't use arrays. Uh, you know that there's, there's that old chestnut that um, the only reasonable numbers you should ever see in source code are 1, 2, and X. Or 0, 1, right. 2, and X. Like, so sometimes 2 makes sense. Not that often. 1 definitely makes sense. But if you ever see like a 14 in source code, you know there's something strange here. Because why would it right. ever be 14 all the time? You know, <laughs> and so it's the same thing with the lengths of a data structure. The length of a data structure—it makes sense to have a data structure that can hold one thing. Sometimes pairs make sense because maybe it's a dictionary and it's like a lookup, you know, name value pairs. But seven—a thing that's always seven—you <laughs> know, like when does that ever happen? Uh, so you almost always need a variable size data structure if it if it's larger than two because of that sort of chestnut. And if you need oh, a variable size data true. structure. You already an array is already going to be falling down on you. It's already not a good way to do things. Uh, remember, well, read dim. <laughs> yeah, and you could do read dim, and it's ridiculously inefficient. We yeah, actually, it's in fact, inefficient. the first thing I do whenever I have to write code in uh, Visual Basic or C or, or one of these programming languages where I'm stuck with bad data structures, uh, I, and I'm sure this is never going to happen to me again in my life. But the first thing I I would do is uh, implement uh, an, an automatically growing array class. For all intents and purposes, you know, not necessarily a class because it might be C, where they don't have classes. But but you need you need something that automatically grows. Um, I, they used to call them plexes at Microsoft. I don't know if anybody else uses that word, but a plex is an array that just manages its own memory and it grows automatically. And uh, the algorithm I was taught in school was that every time you run out of room in your plex, you double the memory. And uh, the reason that that's a good algorithm is that then you never have to redim more than order of uh, log n. Right, so you know you're never gonna you're not gonna be calling the the, the memory map the you know the redim or the memory realloc function uh, that often because it's incredibly slow and often requires a complete copy uh, of right. all the data. So you don't want to call that very often. You're, you're, and and so if you're always doubling the size of the memory, you're not gonna call that that often. And the most memory you can possibly waste is fifty percent. So 
that seems sort of like a reasonable. I think String Builder works that way because String Builder, yeah. which I use all the time, um, um, you can actually pass it a value, which is the initial size. But yeah. if you don't give it an initial value, I think it picks some starting size and then doubles it every time. That's a, that's usually common. a good way to do it these days. Um, there were there was a, there's a there's a string class, the MFC string class doesn't do that. I don't think. I think it would just add 16 bytes every time, and that's that's a bad way to do it. Right. Um, but uh, these days, yeah, do- doubling every time is a good way to do it. So, um, so anyway, the point is that just a, a raw array, that's really kind of a more fundamental core concept, and it shouldn't really be taught as a data structure so much as, as the building block. You know, that's of just, other data structures. Yeah, of, of more that, original data structures. But I think this goes back to our other question of like learning concepts earlier on that are now technically obsolete. Like Array is, tec- array is technically obsolete, mm-hmm. but understanding it, and this is why oh, I've got to tell you, Jonathan Holland's response was really epic, right? He put in diagrams and this great... Yeah. And the other cool thing is the, the user who asked this question was essentially a new user. He has a gold badge at 36 reputation, <laughs> which wow. is awesome. Yeah. But he went back and he accepted Jonathan's answer to his yeah. credit. Like he understood Stack Overflow enough to say, oh, I should. this is a really good response. I'm going to accept it. It's, it's so, one and, of those uh, questions that makes you hit your, 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 your forehead where you're like, God, this guy's stupid. And then you say, wait a minute. <laughs> He's on to something. Well, it's really... It's right, the it's emperor has stupid. no clothes exactly. question. It's yeah. really interesting question if you actually think about what is being yep. asked and why. And that was Damien Katz's reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a great question. I think a perfect model of the kind of stuff we want to see on Stack Overflow. Um, so again, great. Just a great question. So that, that was mine. And I found it accidentally. So go figure. <laughs> All right. Um, that's good enough. I think we should wrap it up. We've got it. We're about 110. Okay. You don't have anything? Oh, come on. You can slip one in there. A little bit. Um, yeah, it's a trouble. Is after that great question, my question is just going to be a downer. I don't even want to get into okay. it. Okay. All right. That's fine. That's so, good. That, that, was a, that was a great one. That one was epic. So That was. Yeah. My, my question is just so, so trivial. Okay. We can do it next episode. No problem. <laughs> um, so I'll wrap it up here. Uh, first of all, um, we want to thank our sponsor. This uh, podcast um, is is. is Put on by uh, the Conversations Network, um, which is a not-for-profit, and uh, they uh, have been um, providing all this bandwidth for us and the hosting uh, at no charge, which is awesome. Um, and they do have some uh, sponsors who have uh, who sponsor the show, uh, much like Public Radio. Um, one of our sponsors we want to thank is DreamHost. It's a uh, cool hosting company. Do you know anything about them, Jeff? Yeah, they have a great blog. Uh, we've talked a little bit about them before. That's right. But, yeah. yeah, they have a great blog. Um, they're actually famous for, uh, well, I won't even go into the whole Fat Fingers story, but you can look, look that up and, and um, really a, a great uh, firm. And there's a terrific offer if you go to dreamhost.com slash Joel. So if you need hosting. Um, uh, wait, wait, wait. Wow. What's about dreamhost slash Jeff? Where's my offer? It's just I don't know. for you? This is so uncool. Dreamhost.com slash Joel. That's spelled J-O-E-L. <laughs> it's spelled J-E-F-F. Sorry. Joel. If you have any questions for, for the show uh, that you'd like us to play on the show, we, uh, we could use some questions. Um, so call our hotline at 646-826-3879 or record an MP3 or Og Vorbis file and uh, email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Um, there's a wiki uh, link to from the show notes where um, uh, volunteers from around the world provide a transcript of the show or even just transcripts of bits and pieces of it that they're interested in having transcribed for the benefit of the hearing impaired and also um, because it's easy to search uh, when you have transcripts with text. And uh, that will be linked to from their show notes, um, which, as usual, are at blog.stackoverflow.com. 
blog.staggoflow.com. There's also a place, um, you know, blog.staggoflow.com. For those of you that just, you know, subscribe to this with iTunes or whatever, and you never really go to the web, and you're just getting this podcast directly stuffed into your ears via some kind of magical mechanism. Um, this website, blog.staggoflow.com, does have, uh, Jeff does occasionally post uh, new news about Stack Overflow on there. Um, it's interesting, and there's a little comments section for every podcast. And uh, we do want to hear your, your, your comments, because I, I, for one, would like to hear what, what people like and what people don't like and what we can do to make the show better in the new year, 2009. That's it. That's right. Have a great week. Yeah, oh, have a great new year. This is, the, this is our new year episode. Ding, ding. Well, let's, right. do a, let's do a fake countdown. Ten, <laughs> nine, eight. No, that's too cheesy for words. <laughs> yeah. Happy new year, everyone. Happy new year. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.